I'll never forget the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. It was going to be amazing. I was a, a 17-year-old kid who loved sports and the, the chance to be with his friends. And, and I'd sort of rigged my summer so that at one point I was going to play summer baseball on a Tuesday, summer basketball on a Thursday, leave straight for a weekend tournament from there, and as soon as the tournament ended, I was going to head out for a week of camp. It was going to be absolutely glorious. And I'd meticulously planned the whole summer around this. I was pretty proud of myself, actually, for packing so much into a tight window of time right there. To, to use the language of food, it was going to be the feast of all feasts for me. Can't tell you how much I was looking forward to it, but, but God had some different plans for that summer for me. See, just a week before this feast began, I fell and I broke my wrist. It turns out that throwing a baseball and, and shooting a jump shot is pretty difficult when you have a fractured wrist. Wasn't fun. I'll, I'll never forget being at the doctor's office and the doctor's putting the cast on my, my wrist and he says, hey, hold out your hand like you're holding a can of beer. I was like, Dude, I'm 17. Like, <laughs> what, what, are we, what are we doing here? But... Uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, but despite my snarky response, I, I was really devastated. All these things I'd look forward to were gone. I wasn't going to be at the camp. I wasn't going to be at the tournaments. I wasn't going to be with my friends. The, the college scouts that were supposed to be there, I, I wouldn't be with them. I was losing scholarship opportunities, and I was absolutely miserable. Now, looking back, of course, it seems sort of petty to think about, you know, in the grand scheme, what I lost wasn't that much. But at the time, I was devastated. And may, maybe you can imagine a time like that in your own life, whether small or large. And I found myself asking, God, why would you let this happen? Why now? Why me? So what I thought would be this immaculate feast ended up being more like a proverbial famine. It was cut off. It was really hard. And what we're going to see this morning in Genesis 12 is Abram is coming off of this incredible set of promises from God. One of the most banner passages in all the Bible, the beginning of Genesis 12, on promises from God. And he's looking forward to this feast of God's blessing, and he immediately encounters a famine. So this, this morning's sermon is titled, Living by Faith in the Famine. In fact, we're in the midst of a new leg of the Genesis series. You see the banners living in the gap where so much of our lives is found where God has promised one thing. Here's the promise he's been given. And it seems to be a gap between what he's promised and our reality. And we're living here in the gap. Saying, this doesn't measure up to the way I thought it was supposed to be. This week we'll see living by faith in the famine, but throughout the next dozen or so chapters of Genesis, we'll see this continuing theme of how do we live in the gap between what God has promised and what my reality seems to be right now. Of course, we're just getting back into the book of Genesis. We were in the parables of Jesus all summer, and we're sort of reorienting ourselves to how we read Genesis. I would say as we do that, if you haven't picked up one of those scripture journals from the bookstore so that you can read ahead and note what's coming and take some notes, I would encourage you to do that. Uh, I knew a couple of guys who've been using those thus far in the series. They found it really helpful in their spiritual growth. And we're less than 25% of the way through the book, so there's still plenty of time. You're not behind. Go grab one of those from the bookstore. I'd encourage you to do that. 
But it's important for us to remember how we are supposed to read these Old Testament narratives. It's important that we remember they are written for our instruction to have hope in the God who saves. Not merely as moral tales, but for our instruction to have hope in the God who saves. Romans 15, 4 speaks of this. You see it on the screen here. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Through endurance, encouragement from the scriptures, you'll have hope to continue. That's why this is written. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write down 1 Corinthians 10, 11. It's another New Testament passage that tells you how to read your Old Testament that this is here for our instruction. And what that means, and then why it's so important, is that this morning's passage, Genesis 12, is not merely a tale about morality and ethics and the importance of telling the truth. It's actually much bigger than that. The, the Bible is not merely like Aesop's fables that give us interesting little stories to tell a moral principle. There's something far more profound that all of the stories... They all come together as part of one big overarching unified story of how God intervenes in history to save his people, to deliver them from themselves. What you'll frequently hear me say is, God is holy, we are not, but praise God, Jesus saves and Christ becomes our life. We just sang on the holiness of God. Scott prayed on the holiness of God. We recognize he's unlike us in every respect. He's morally perfect and pure but he also knows no limitation like we know either. We're not like him, and so that's why we need Jesus to save us. And even in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Christ, it's still testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's pointing ahead that we would look for it and see him when he comes. So it's important that we read Genesis in that way, and we know that it's part of an overarching, unified story. So as far as our outline, our structure this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to make three observations from Genesis 12. Three observations. And then from those, we're going to pull out three keys for living by faith in the famine. So let's make a few observations, then pull out a couple of keys for living by faith in the famine. Let's start with our first observation from Genesis 12. Here it is. Famines reveal idols. You're going to live by faith in the famine. We've got to make this observation that famines reveal idols. Now, I hope your copy of God's word is still open. If it's not, reopen it, please, to Genesis 12 and look back at verse 10. We read, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. You put yourself into Abram's shoes for a second here. He just receives these promises from God. He takes a step of faith, he goes into the wilderness, and his first recorded event in getting to the promised land is, wait for it, leaving the promised land. That's not how this was supposed to go. And the repetition in verse 10 of the famine highlights its severity. It opens, there was a famine, it closes, and actually the famine was really severe. And it's important for us to note that because I think sometimes in the West, in Christianity, it's easiest. It's easy for us to pretend, maybe like we're super spiritual or maybe we just kind of got it all together, but that famines don't actually hit us. It's easy for us to pretend like everything's perfect and be strong. We got to recognize as a family, as the body of Christ, that nobody, none of us are immune from receiving a, a bad diagnosis 
or from having addiction run rampant in our wives or in our families' wives, from seeing relationships torn apart, from seeing our kids make bad decisions. This is normal part of life. This is the proverbial famine that does hit all of us. And I think sometimes we don't share about that because we don't want to be a burden to people. I understand that. makes sense. I don't want to be a burden. But we also have to recognize that we're called to know others and be known by others. I found it's a lot harder to be known by others than to merely say, hey, let me know if I can help out. To let people help me is harder than to offer my help, if that makes sense. And I found in myself, it's kind of a mark of pride in some ways. That I want to be the one who's able to give, it's hard to be the one who receives. And yet, Galatians 6, we're called to bear one another's burdens in love. And so it's important as we begin to walk through the famine here to recognize it does hit everyone, and the body of Christ is here to be the body of Christ and walk through these things together. Now, famines are, are real, and they're, they're certainly not fun. No one enjoys that, whatever shape it takes in your life. But as we read the Bible, what we find is that we should not be surprised when they come. In fact, God actually promises this is a normal part of the Christian life. 1 Peter 4, on the screen, you see this, we, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normal. It's not fun, not desirable, none of us like it, but it is part of God's refining process, and so we should prepare ourselves knowing this is a normal part of the Christian life. And just as Genesis 12 tells us that the land was barren, there was a famine, so Sarai's womb would be barren as well. And notice, it was not wrong for Abram to desire fruitfulness from the land or from her womb. That was not a wrong desire. What was wrong was the way he tried to accomplish and get around these things. He didn't wait for God's timing or God's ways. He wanted in his timing and in his ways. And in both of those scenarios, we see Abram resorting to his own ways, trying to get a good thing, but not actually trusting God for the good thing, right? We see this in verse 11, 12, and 13. So look back at your copy of God's word as we see what he says on this matter. Starting in verse 11, when he, that being Abram, was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me. But they will let you live. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. You see, he wanted things in his timing, his ways. He had to take control. And again, before we crush Abram for his disobedience here, just notice again the pattern of his life. He picked up, went into the wilderness as God called him to. Scary step, right? He gets where he's going. What immediately happens? Famine. He picks up, leaves, and where does he find himself? Facing the fearsome Egyptians. Maybe you can relate to this. It's like, man, the first body blow I got was okay, we're walking with Jesus. And the second one, I kind of limped a little bit, but we're still moving. But gosh, that third haymaker came, and I just couldn't take it anymore. That's kind of where we find Abram right here. And yet what is so interesting to me to see in this is that the greatest threat for Abram wasn't actually the famine. The greatest threat wasn't the fearsome Egyptians and the Pharaoh. 
The greatest threat was his own idols of safety and security that he had to have, and he would lie to maintain those. It reminds me, about 100 years ago, the uh, major newspaper, The Times in London, ran a series of articles uh, titled, uh, or is answering the question, what's wrong with the world? So they, they sent this question, what's wrong with the world, out to politicians, to theologians, to, to philosophers, to writers, all this. And they were going to, you know, over a period of weeks, publish their answers to this question, what's wrong with the world? And Christian theologian G.K. Chesterton was part of it. And his answer back was quite simple to them. He wrote in his, his letter, Dear Sirs, I am. That was the end. You see, what, what it reminds us of is it's easy to see our circumstances as the greatest threat to living by faith in the famine, to living in the gap between God's promises and our realities. It's easy to see the greatest threat as the surrounding culture as it's going in a godless direction. But the reality is the greatest threat is our own idols. I think one of Satan's tools is to get us focused externally when God's saying, I'm looking inward at making you into the person I want you to become. That's not to say there are not threats in your circumstances or in the surrounding culture, just that the greatest one is in ourselves. And because Abram trusted and desired and wanted and loved safety and security more than God, he trusted those things more than he trusted God, he sinned. Yes, it caused him to lie, but you have to see what's underneath the lie. Why did he lie? Because he valued that safety and security more than he valued trusting God, that God would provide for him, that God would deliver him. And if Abram, the the giant of faith, the great patriarch, if Abram had idols that caused him to go way off the rails, then I'm confident that I do and you do too. I, I heard Tim Keller say one time, I thought this was helpful, that trials reveal if we're actually serving God or asking God to serve us. It sounds similar, but it's actually a world of difference. Am I actually serving God, whatever he brings, walking by faith with that, or am I asking him to serve me and what I want? And he's functionally a genie in the bottle, even though I would never actually say that out loud. So that's the first observation, that famines reveal idols. Second observation I want to point out is that idols bring consequences. Idols bring consequences. And particularly what I want you to notice here is the consequences beyond yourself, or beyond Abram's self that are brought about here. Look down at verse 17 of Genesis 12 with me. We read, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You see, Abram's idolatry and his sin brought consequences on Pharaoh despite Pharaoh not doing anything wrong. The consequences extended beyond Abram. And Abram's idolatry and his sin brought consequences on Sarai. Now, the, the, the Hebrew kind of communicates, not kind of, it does communicate, that Abram didn't make a demand of Sarai to, uh, to lie. It was a cordial yet urgent request. And so his idolatry begins to ask her to do things that she ought not do. You ask other people to compromise in ways that seems logical to you, but it brings back to that old phrase that sin makes you stupid. You start doing things that don't make sense and you ask other people to do things that don't make sense. Idolatry brings consequences beyond 
yourself. And what this does is it kind of points out a reality that there's a faulty reasoning we often hear these days that it's okay as long as it's not hurting somebody else. As if there is a category of sin that doesn't hurt anybody else. That category doesn't exist. All sin hurts somebody else, even if it's not clear to us. And and here's why that is. If sin is merely doing something that was against the rules, then maybe I could break a rule that doesn't impact somebody else. But that's actually not all that sin is. Sin is going against what God has ordained that is for the good of everyone, the universe, in the universe. And so when I sin, I'm tearing against the fabric of the universe, how God has created the world. Sometimes you'll hear theologians say, you're going against the creational order. That's what they mean by this. And so whenever I work against that, it's going to have, yes, a vertical dimension. It impacts my relationship with God, but it also always has a horizontal dimension. It will impact my fellow man, my neighbors. And in, so in some ways, this is really obvious, right? You can see this obviously like in the sin of gossip, right? Yes, this impacts somebody else negatively. It's not merely isolated to me. Or perhaps in sins of substance abuse, you clearly see how that's impacting those around you. It's not just you. Or in violent crimes, Like like these scenarios, it's really easy to see how it impacts others. But there are other kinds of sin and idolatry where it's not so obvious, and yet we have to remember it always brings consequences. So so for example, you think of uh, the sin of pornography use. You think, man, it's just me. I'm just in my room. It's just this screen. No one else is being impacted by it. What's the big problem? What you lose sight of, there's somebody on the other side of that screen that likely does not want to be in that industry. And they've been there, they've found themselves there by exploitation. Perhaps they've been trafficked there. And your viewing of that supports the industry and harms them in major ways, although you'll never meet them personally, most likely. And to bring it more to bear on your immediate community, you begin to see other people as objects instead of image bearers. And you don't exactly know how that impacts and harms them, but it does. If if I were to take the time, and I won't this morning, I could build a similar case around gluttony or homosexuality or overspending, things that we may think we can isolate in our corner as if I can do this and it's not impacting anyone else. But if we're gonna read Genesis 12 seriously and see what's there, we have to recognize that idolatry always brings consequences in the vertical dimension of how it impacts my relationship with God and it always brings consequences in the horizontal dimension of how it impacts others. Or to say it succinctly, it's to say this, sin never occurs in isolation. It never occurs in isolation. And the scary part is I don't get to pick who's impacted or how they're impacted. Maybe you've heard it said that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's true. And I might add, and it will impact people you never intended to impact. So consider the consequences and the cost at the outset and recognize these things and turn away from idolatry and choose to walk by faith. That's our second observation. The idols bring consequences. Third observation, God intervenes for his people. God intervenes for his people. 
So verse 17, we already saw this a little bit, where the plagues come into the mix. God intervenes with plagues. What is a undesirable thing, no one wants the plagues, is actually God's intervention to work for his glory and Abram's good. Note the instructive piece there. Sometimes there are unpleasant circumstances that God is using for his glory and our good. You see it right in front of us here. But in verse 20, we see the continuation of God's intervention. Look back at verse 20. Here's what we read. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, that is concerning Abram, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So, so, so not only did God send these plagues as a means of deliverance, but he also sent this, you know, these royal officials in Egypt to send them away, to make sure they could get where they were going safely. Notice also, God's intervention wasn't because of Abram's perfect obedience. God doesn't intervene like, oh, wow, this guy is really going at it strong. He's really being faithful. He's really doing what I've called him to do. I'll intervene on his behalf. He says, no, 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 no. He's lost his way, and I'm going to seek him, and I'm going to find him. It's a foreshadowing of Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for this in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God, we have a seeking and a pursuing and an intervening God, not a passive God who's sitting back with his arms crossed waiting for us to come to him. Amen? That's good news. And what this actually does is it foreshadows the greater exodus. You can just see it in an acorn form here, right? The, the plagues come. Pharaoh realizes it's good for you to not be here. Let me send you away with blessings and gifts and let's have our people get you out of here. What's happening in Genesis 12 is establishing a pattern in redemptive history that God himself will intervene when we lose our way. It's an entire sermon in its own right. God will intervene when we lose our way. And up to this point in Genesis, you've seen God intervening in a different way. So Cain kills Abel, Genesis 4. God intervenes with a new son, a fresh start of sorts. Here's the new son. Give you a second chance. That doesn't go well. Wickedness fills the earth. God sends the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. Let's give a fresh start with a new earth of sorts. That doesn't really work. The earth is filled with wickedness. And it's as if God says, you need more than a fresh start. You need more than a clean slate. You need more than a second chance. You need me to intervene on your behalf and do what you couldn't do for yourself. It's a pattern we'll see throughout all of scripture and, and just in, in acorn, seed form, you see it here in Genesis 12. See, God's saying, I will stoop to your level, I'll condescend to your earth, I will enter the arena that you're in and I'll walk with you and I'll carry you all the way to the finish line because you won't get there on your own. It's a God you can trust. It, it reminds me of Derek Redmond. Maybe you're familiar with Derek. He was a British sprinter in the 80s and 90s. In 1992 Barcelona Games, he was running the 400-meter sprint. He was near the, the pinnacle of his career. He'd been training for this moment. Races leading up to Derek was doing great. He got off to a fantastic start out of the gates. And about 200 meters in, he felt a piercing pain as he'd torn his hamstring in half. He hits the deck, thinks that maybe he can get up and run again. Of course, the sprinters blow by him. He looks around. He sees the doctors and medical staff trying to come and get him and pick him up. And he, he gets up to his feet, trying to go. He, he can barely take a step. He's, he's limping as he goes. And then out of nowhere, somebody puts his arm around him. 
in one of the most iconic photos in Olympic history, you see his dad, his dad coming down the race with him. I think you, you can see a picture of it here. Maybe not. There it is. Maybe you've seen that. And it's as if his dad said, as he, as he broke through the security lines, guys are chasing him, trying to pull him back, like, you can't go out there. He's like, no, you don't, you don't get it. Nothing will stop me. That's my son, and he's fallen down, and he's not going to get to the finish line, and I'm going to go find him, and nothing's going to stop me, and I'm going to pick him up, and I'm going to carry him, and we're going to get to the finish line. That's how God intervenes for us. Nothing's going to stop me. If I have to send my son for you, he has to die for you. You've fallen, you're not going to get back up. You need more than a second chance. You need a God who will intervene for his people and carry them to the finish line, and you could trust him for that. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel in a small little way. And I just want to tell you this morning, if you're here as a Christian, you're like, Justin, that, that's compelling. It's interesting to hear you say that, but I don't know if I've ever actually collapsed into the arms of Jesus before. I've still been trying to run this race on my own. This morning can be the day that you become a Christian that you cry out and say, Jesus, I see that I don't merely need a second chance or a fresh start or a clean slate. I need you to save me. If you cry out to Jesus, ask him to forgive you of your sins, confess that he is holy, you are not, that Jesus saves and Christ will become your life, you can become one of his followers. And man, I would love to talk to you about that afterwards today. But I also know this, that as a Christian, I can lose sight of this imagery I can pretend that I don't have a torn hamstring as a Christian and that I can get myself to the finish line. I can try and run the race without collapsing into the arms of King Jesus, the good father that we all want and need. I mean, I wonder this morning if that's where you're at. I would just encourage you, don't be afraid to collapse into the arms of Jesus. Allow him to carry you to the finish line. Man, there's glorious truths here. But I want us to, to do something. I want us to go beyond just seeing these truths, and I want to think a little bit more on how we apply these truths to our lives. How does the truth that God breaks into our life, that he intervenes, that we can trust his promises, how do we take that, and how is our life transformed by it? How does that happen? Right, so, so we've seen our three observations, that famines reveal idols, idols bring consequences, God intervenes for his people, now, on the basis of what we've seen there, how do we draw out some keys to help us walk by faith in the famine? Turn on to your th three keys to walk by faith in the famine. And the first key is a little bit preemptive. It's preparing us for the famine. And then the second two will be when you're in the midst of, the, of that famine. Here's the first one. Dig deep wells before you're thirsty. Dig deep wells before you're thirsty. Now, I'm borrowing that phrase. I saw some leadership development material from Chick-fil-A, and I thought it was good. I figured if, if they can feed you six days a week, at least I can bring you a nugget from them on Sunday as well to complete the cycle. But the principle is, is really sound for our Christian lives. Right? I, I grew up on a well as a kid, and at one point it went out, and it was quite a process to dig that bad boy out and go deeper into the ground and find a better stream. And here's what I know. Had I been thirsty when the well went out and then I just started to dig right there, it would not have gone well because it's going to take a long time to find water. You got to dig the well before you're thirsty. 
Or, or maybe, maybe a, a traveling analogy is better. I'm sure you can imagine a time where you've been on a road trip and you know there's a stretch of road where there's a long way between gas stations. For me, that's the Pennsylvania Turnpike. You've got your road you know of, right? And what you know is you know the last two or three exits before that, I gotta fill up there. I gotta get gas before I hit the dry spell. I gotta dig the well, per se. So what does it mean to dig deep spiritual wells before you're thirsty and fill up on spiritual gas before you hit the turnpike? What does that exactly look like? It means you dig deeply into the scriptures, into the gospel of Jesus Christ before you hit the crisis. When life seems to be somewhat peaceful, or at least things are, are kind of moving in the right direction, you prioritize deep investments in those streams of grace, knowing, 1 Peter 4, 12, that the famine is going to come, the trial is going to come, and I'm going to need to be sustained there. I take you back to Romans 15, 4 that we've begun with. The things that were written before were written for your instruction so that through endurance and perseverance and encouragement from the scriptures, you might have hope. And friends, you won't have the encouragement from the scriptures if you don't know what they say. Endurance is gonna be tough. We need each other. Perseverance in the scriptures and encouragement from the scriptures by digging deep into them. Maybe your application point this morning is say, Justin, this fall, life feels crazy, we're busy, there's a lot going on, but I need to be back tonight to study the minor prophets and dig a deeper well in God's word. That may be what it is. But there's no more foundational habit than you could ever develop than to regularly, daily spend time in God's word. And I don't mean to get off on like, like preacher talk here, of, hey, read your Bible, pray more, checklist Christianity. But the fact of the matter is, God has revealed himself to us in his word. And for us to know him, to grow deeper into who he is and who he's called us to be, we have to spend time there. So dig that well. Start today. Don't even say, I'm going to start Monday. Like, do it this afternoon. While we're on the topic of reading, one of the ways that you can also dig a deeper well is to read Christian biography where you hear how Christians throughout history have navigated difficult seasons, how God's grace has strengthened them, how he's worked in improbable ways, how he's chosen to not work, and how his grace has been sufficient for them in great difficulty. Just this summer, our kids in the summer reading program, there were almost 50 kids who were reading Christian biography, and I praise God for that. And I hope that our adults will be like our kids in that way and find strength there. Another way you, you dig a deep well is to invest in significant and deep relationships in the body of Christ. 1 Peter 5 says that, says that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking the one individual separated from the group. That's the one he's going to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. In other words, when we're together as the body of Christ, not merely coming to church, yes, that, that's important, you need to be here, but actually meaningfully connected to your faith family, linking arms together, you're stronger. There's a well that will carry you in the midst of difficulty. And Satan's looking for the isolated guy, the isolated gal on the periphery, not meaningfully connected. These are some of the basic ways of what it means to dig deep wells before you're thirsty. So that when that famine comes, 
you're ready. It won't be easy. Nothing makes it easy, but it does make it doable. You know, they say the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but the second best time is today. So if you haven't dug that well, yes, it would have been better to dig it 20 years ago, but don't bemoan the fact, let's not cry over spilt milk, get started digging that well today so that you can walk by faith whatever famines come. That's the first key. Here's the second key. And this gets more into when you're actually in the famine. Friends, we have to cling to the promises of God. I know Casey said this last week, but it's so important. We have to say it again. We look at the promises of God are what carry us through. Though Abraham was at fault, he was in the wrong. Though Pharaoh was duped, he was unwise, God still intervened for his people, which tells us that human failure cannot stand in the way of the promises of God. Amen? And so when the literal or the proverbial famine comes, it's so easy for us to cling to those idols that we have. Right? For Abram, it was safety and security. He loved that, he valued that above all else. And so he was willing to lie to protect his idol. It's what he really loved. And, and I wonder this morning, here's a question for you. Have you ever spent time, sat down, and tried to consider what are the things that I actually idolize? Not merely what's the sin I'm prone to commit, but what's the idol underneath the sin that pushes me that says it's okay to commit that sin because I have to value this thing so much. This would be a great lunch conversation, by the way, with a friend, a family member. Say, what do you think? I want to work through this together. Guys, I get it. This is a really, really hard conversation. It's a little uncomfortable to think about it, actually. But it doesn't have to be doom and gloom all the time on this. Because when I know the things that I tend to idolize, what that does is it allows me to more clearly focus on the promises of God that I need to claim. Right, so I may idolize control. Maybe relational control or financial control or perceived control of my job or the future. And, and I just have to have, and when I don't have that control, I can't deal with it. Right, you know that feeling of it's like I'm just, my, my inner RPMs are just redlining and I don't know what to do. Like, man, for, for you then claim Isaiah 40, 31. For those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. For those who wait on the Lord. Because I want the renewed strength part. I want the flying like an eagle part. I want the running part. I want the walking and not being faint part. He's saying it's for those who wait on the Lord. It will come wait on him in his timing. That, that control is your, I mean, I have to have control. Then claim, claim Hebrews 13, 5. Says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because the more I try to wait, the more it feels like maybe God has lost sight of where I'm at. So I claim Hebrews 13, 5. Says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Maybe it's not control, it's your own performance that you idolize. And your life is basically swinging between two poles. And when you're doing pretty good, you feel pretty, you're filled with pride because I'm doing a good job. And when you start to not live the way you want to and not perform the way you want to and you're, you're doing stuff you ought not do, then you go to despair and self-loathing and you hate yourself because underneath both of those, you've idolized your performance. And that's what actually drives me. Then, then you need to claim the promises of Romans 8, 38, and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that means? Nor anything else in all creation, that means not even you can separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So cling to him and his performance, not yourself and your own performance. Maybe you say, Justin, I, I don't think it's control. I, I don't think it's performance. I think it's my it's pleasure that I idolize. Vacation or this particular shopping, this form of sexual pleasure. I got a favorite hobby that like, when, when everything goes to pot, that's the thing I have to have. And if I don't have that, then I can't proceed through whatever stage of life I'm in here. Then what promise of God do you cling to? Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are more pleasures at your right hand. In your presence there is more joy, Jesus, than in this thing that looks awfully good to me right now. And then you go to Matthew 6 and you claim the promise that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Not saying all the things you want, but all the things you need will be provided. And it's better to seek his kingdom first than your own kingdom first. You cling to the promises of God because there's so much in your life that gets blurry. You can't tell right from left sometimes. It's hard when the famine is severe. When the trial is long and the night is dark, you need something to hold on to. Living by faith in the famine means clinging to the promises of God, knowing that no human failure can thwart his promises. It's the second key, cling to the promises of God. Third and finally, cling to the God of the promises. We'll play on words there, cling to the God of the promises. Here's what I know. There's times when the famine is so severe, I feel so weak, so beat down, so frazzled, that I don't think I have the spiritual energy to actually zero in on a promise. It's like it requires too much energy and I can't even do that. Maybe you've had a time like that where it's like, it's so dark, I don't know that I have the physical strength to open my Bible. Maybe you've known a season like that, a dark night of the soul. What do I do then, Justin? I can't even get my mind wrapped around this. Friends, you cling to the God behind the promises. Cling to Jesus. I can't spit out those verses like you just did. I don't have it in me. You're my one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. I'm clinging to you, Jesus. I don't know what else to do. I don't really know what to say. I'm just doing everything I can to hold on to you, knowing that you are always holding on to me and you'll never let me go. We recognize in our famines, in the dark night, it's so easy to cling to our idols. Most likely we will at some point. And yet you remember in that, remember this, in Jesus' 40 days of fasting, he clung tightly to God's word. So that right now, if you are in Christ and if you've asked him to be your savior, when God looks down, 
He's not seeing you holding on to your idol. He's seeing Jesus clinging to God's word and his active obedience is being applied to your account. So you say, I'm just gonna hold on to Jesus right now. Whereas Abraham feared the rejection of those Egyptian people, Jesus knew the rejection of his own people. Catch that difference. Abram feared what a foreign people might do. Jesus knew what his own people would do to him. And as a result, Abram lied, hoping to save his own life. And yet Jesus told the truth, knowing that it would cost him his life. He told them who he was, whereas Abram lied about who he was. And in this, we see God intervening on our behalf, Jesus drawing near to sufferers and to sinners, saying, I see you when you're afraid, when you're scared, when you're in the famine. I'm with you. I've gone through the fire for you. I'm not letting go of you. Just hold on to me. And when you feel too weak to take another step, you Perhaps go back to the song that we'll sing in a moment, yet not I, but Christ through me. There's a line I'll leave you with in that song. It says, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ through me. And in the fam, you say, boy, how strange is it that I could say all is mine? Because everything seems to be taken away. Yes, that is strange. But it is divine because it's through Christ. Friends, because of Jesus, you can walk by faith in the midst of the famine. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in prayer right now, asking for your grace, asking for your mercy to strengthen us, to sustain us, that we would cling to your promises, that we would cling to you. We thank you that you will hold us fast. We thank you that your love never fails, it never gives up on us. We thank you that you came to this earth faced the fears, the temptations, the trials that we would and conquered them so that as we hold tight to you, you will deliver us as you have been delivering your people for thousands of years. We pray these things in Jesus' name.